All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creongs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. guys welcome back this is Faye. this is nick and this is Kriogs Kriogs over, over coffee. coffee so today we're gonna go back to our journal club style episode and we're gonna talk more about magnesium we're really gonna exhaust this over these two weeks so we'll be discussing the beam trial um nick what are our learning objectives for today so we'll first review the beam trial which as you mentioned Faye, is one of those other trials that we think all obstetrics and gynecology residents should be familiar with. Um, we'll understand some of the reasons why, again, we do what we do and why magnesium, but this case in the context of cerebral palsy prevention. Um, and then finally, we'll review some follow-up and how exactly we practice now. And I know we kind of teased that a little bit during our last episode about MAGPIE, but this time we're talking BEAM trial. Faye, BEAM is a kind of a cute acronym for beneficial effects of antenatal magnesium sulfate. Um, but it has an actual title, and why don't you tell us about the background? Sure. So BEAM, actually, the, the beneficial effects of antenatal magnesium sulfate was on the clinicaltrials.gov website, but the actual title of the paper is A Randomized Controlled Trial of Magnesium Sulfate for the Prevention of Cerebral Palsy. It doesn't say BEAM anywhere in the study title, which is why I was very confused initially when I was like, why is the study called BEAM? As with all studies, you know, we like to say, you know, who did it? And why was it done? So this was a study that was conducted by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes and the George Washington University Biostatistics Center, so mainly an MFMU study. The PI and first author is none other than our beloved Dr. Dwight Rouse from Women and Infants, though I don't think he was there at the time when he conducted this study. And it was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008. You know, the reason the study was done was that at this point, we knew that cerebral palsy was a huge cause of chronic childhood disability and preterm birth was a big risk factor for CP. And previous studies had shown that those infants who had cerebral palsy were less likely to be exposed to magnesium than those that didn't have magnesium exposure. And there were also smaller studies that had shown that maybe magnesium did not potentially decrease infant death or cerebral palsy, so some negative studies. So basically there was qu this question of does magnesium work or not 
for cerebral palsy prophylaxis. And there was some biological plausibility. So magnesium might reduce vascular instability, it might prevent hypoxic damage, and potentially mitigate cytokine or excitatory amino acid damage, whatever that means. So basically the question was, will giving magnesium sulfate to women who are at high risk of preterm delivery decrease the risk of CP in their children? So now with that background information, Nick, talk to us a little bit about the methods. Like who was in the study? How was it done? What were they looking for? The study was done or recruited for between December 1997 and May of 2004. And Faye, I'm going to date myself here a little bit. Um, this <laughs> apparently was being done, I guess, during at least my formative years. Um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, age seven to 14. Wow. Um, so kind of like, I guess, when we were babies, basically. But it was done at 20 participating maternal fetal medicine unit networks sites across the United States. And to be included in the trial, you needed to have a singleton or twin pregnancy between 24 and 31 weeks of gestation. It was considered a high risk of delivery, either because of pre-labor premature rupture of membranes, somewhere between 22 and 31 weeks, or a cervical dilation of somewhere between 4 and 8 centimeters in intact membranes. They say 24 to 31 weeks in the text of the paper, but they actually meant 24 and 0 to 31 and 6. So that's where that sort of practice guideline of us going all the way to 32 weeks comes from. And then they also included folks who had indicated preterm delivery within that time frame anticipated within the subsequent 2 to 24 hours. Now, there were some exclusion criteria, and, you, and so the exclusions were if delivery was anticipated in under 2 hours, if a cervix was greater than 8 centimeters, if PPROM was under 22 weeks, if there was an unwillingness for the obstetrician to intervene for the benefit of the fetus. Um, so again, probably thinking about those really early gestational ages in this case. Um, patients who had fetuses affected by major anomalies or an IUFD. Um, interestingly, they actually excluded maternal hypertension or preeclampsia in this trial too. They excluded other contraindications to magnesium sulfate, things like myasthenia gravis. And they also excluded folks who had received IV magnesium in the previous 12 hours. So the study was a double-blind randomized controlled trial, um, and subjects were randomized to either IV magnesium or placebo. And IV magnesium, as we mentioned in our MAGPIE trial episode, was a little bit different in BEAM. So in BEAM, the loading dose was actually 6 grams over 20 to 30 minutes, then a maintenance of 2 grams per hour. And recall that in MAGPIE, the difference was it was a 4-1 regimen, but in BEAM, it was a 6-2 regimen. If delivery didn't occur within 12 hours of getting started on magnesium, infusion was stopped and then would be restarted if delivery was felt to become imminent again. If over six hours had passed since discontinuation of the study med, so the patient had their magnesium or their placebo turned off at some point and it went six hours, then they would re-bolus at whatever the bolus dosing was supposed to be for either the placebo or the magnesium at that point. And then the randomization was kind of equalized and stratified for the clinical center itself, um, for twin gestations, and then weeks of gestations dichotomized as under 28 or greater than or equal to 28 weeks. All right, so Faye, we talked a bit here about methods, but one thing that we learned last time with MAGPIE 2 was the importance of that primary outcome. So what are we looking for in this trial? 
Yeah, so in terms of the outcomes, their primary outcome was a composite of stillbirth, infant death at one year of age, or moderate or severe cerebral palsy as assessed at or beyond two years of age. And these ages were corrected for prematurity. So yeah, they actually followed these babies out for more than two years of life, which is, you know, amazing for a study like this and probably why it needed to be conducted over such a long time. They had certified pediatricians or pediatric neurologists to make the diagnosis of CP with the criteria that they list, which I won't list for you. And if CP was diagnosed, um, they then used what's called the gross motor function classification system to assess the severity of CP. There are secondary outcomes that I just wanted to mention too were things like maternal outcomes and complications, adverse events um, potentially attributed to study intervention, um, neonatal complications, and then also CP at two years of age that is mild. And then they divided this out to mild, moderate, or severe. And then of course, all those individual things that they put into their composite primary outcome, like stillbirth, infant death. And then they also looked at things like the Bailey scale of infant development two score at two years of age, cranial ultrasounds um, were done on all the neonates as well. And then again, the analysis was done stratified according to if randomization occurred at less than 28 weeks versus greater than or equal to 28 weeks. So the next thing that they did um, was that they did do a power calculation, Nick. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about their stats? Yeah, I have to qualify that I am not a statistician. But we'll try and do our best to kind of explain where these power calculations and other things came from. They assumed that this primary outcome, again, recall being the composite of stillbirth, infant death at a year, moderate to severe cerebral palsy at two years of age, um, would occur in 14% of the placebo group and assumed a death rate of 6%, and that the rate of moderate to severe cerebral palsy then would be 8% amongst the survivors. Um, now, kind of looking at that on its face, Faye, that seems really high to me. Yeah, at least in 2022, it seems very high. Yeah, but looking back, actually, there's a study in 2006 that looked at survival without major morbidity. Um at 30 weeks, and it was 92%. So again, maybe that 8% actually is not too high for the time. And it's also kind of challenging because there are a lot of early studies of this that really don't follow children out that well to assess these major neurologic outcomes beyond just no early survival. The BEAM trial itself actually cites a study about CP prevalence, again, from this like 2000s time period. So again, taking that step back, maybe recognizing that these rates of this primary outcome might actually be much higher in the time period that the trial is conducted compared to now with all of the changes in NICU care as well. But that's sort of, again, where this 14% primary outcome prediction came from. So if you take that, they deemed that 2,000 patients ultimately would be enough to detect a 30% reduction in that outcome um, with a standard type 1 error rate of 5% and a power of at least 80%. Uh, I hope that that came out clearly for everybody listening. All right, so what we really wanted to get to, Faye, though, were the results. Yeah. So um, in terms of the results, I wanted to first highlight who they actually recruited. So they had 2,241 eligible women that were enrolled, um, which is a lot of women. You know, this Mm -hmm. is a a huge study. So 1,096 of them were assigned to receive mag sulfate. From those women, 
1,188 fetuses were included for analysis, and that's because remember they included twins. On the other side, 1,145 women were assigned to receive placebo, and from these pregnancies, there was 1,256 fetuses. Overall, baseline characteristics were similar in both groups, and actually, adherence to the protocol was really high, which you know again is commendable. Only 1.4 percent、uh, of the cohort had some off-protocol use of the magnesium, and again,、um, that was because they didn't include anybody who had preeclampsia. The one interesting thing that I wanted to point out was that the median dose of the magnesium was 31.5 grams, with the interquartile range of 29 to 44.6 grams, which. If you kind of think about it, like with a six gram loading dose and two grams an hour, that's a lot of mag. And just like me calculating that out, on average, the median was twelve point seven five hours of mag. So thirteen hours of mag is a lot of magnesium, and we can talk about that a little bit later on too. But enough about who they recruited and how they did the study, Nick. What were their outcomes? What were their findings? So. Coming back to that primary outcome again, the composite of moderate to severe cerebral palsy and death,、um, this actually turned out to be a negative trial. They weren't different between magnesium and placebo,、um, and that's probably one important thing to take away from this. That's so interesting.、Um, in the magnesium group, the primary outcome occurred 11.3 percent of the time, and in the placebo group, occurred about 11.7 percent of the time. So not far off that 14 percent that they expect. Expected the primary outcome to occur with in the placebo group, but where things get a little more interesting is when we do some of these sub-analyses. So if you take a look at moderate to severe cerebral palsy on its own, you actually see a benefit to magnesium. The moderate to severe cerebral palsy occurred 1.9 percent of the time in the magnesium group versus 3.5 percent of the time in the placebo group. That equates to a relative risk of about 0.55 or a 50 percent reduction thereabouts,、um, with a 95 percent confidence interval spanning between 0.32 and 0.95. But again, like almost a 50 percent reduction、yeah. in the rate of moderate to severe cerebral palsy, which is Definitely laudable. They also looked at risk of stillbirth between the groups, which was slightly higher in the magnesium group, nine point five percent versus eight point five percent in the placebo group. But this was not statistically different. Really, there wasn't a difference in any big outcome except for that risk of moderate to severe cerebral palsy. And then when you stratified it further and you Go to those gestational ages, looking at under 28 weeks versus greater than or equal to 28 weeks. You actually only saw the big difference here in the group that was under 28 weeks.、Mm-hmm. So again, looking at those numbers under 28 weeks, we saw moderate to severe cerebral palsy in the MAG group 2.7 percent of the time, and in the placebo group 6 percent of the time. If you look at greater than 28 weeks, it actually was 1.3 percent for this to occur, moderate to severe cerebral palsy in both arms.、Um, so interestingly enough, even though on the whole it came out to be significant, when you stratified it by gestational age, the biggest and really the significant benefit was there for the babies under 28 weeks. So really, really interesting, Faye, in terms of like where this has had ramifications for, and we'll. Certainly, talk about that later.、Um, but let's talk about some secondary outcomes too. Yeah, so I broke this out into neonatal, obstetric, and adverse events. 
So uh, when we're looking at the neonatal outcomes, we um, I, I wanted to talk about the percentages of mild, moderate, and severe cerebral palsy, um, not including the diagnosis at one year, were much smaller in the magnesium sulfate group compared to placebo. So just looking at this straight across, you know, mild cerebral palsy was 2.2% in the mag group versus 3.7% in placebo. Moderate was 1.5% in mag versus 2% in placebo. And then severe was 0.5% in the mag group versus 1.6% in the placebo group. So across all three categories, the diagnosis of cerebral palsy was lower in those that received magnesium. In terms of obstetric outcomes, you know, as expected, there really wasn't any difference in terms of things like gestational age at delivery, um, steroid receipt, chorioamnionitis, C-sections, endometritis, pulmonary edema. But when we look at the adverse events, that's actually significantly higher in the magnesium group. So, you know, any adverse event overall in the MAG group was 77%, which mm. is – that's – basically three quarters of your population that got magnesium compared to placebo where it was 12.4%. And if we look at things like flushing, sweating, pain or burning at the IV site, nausea, vomiting, infusion stop because of adverse event, all of these were significantly different in the magnesium group. And you might say, you know what, what's a little flushing, what's a little sweating? But as we know, magnesium sometimes can cause a lot of distress in our patients. All right. So kind of putting all of this together, Nick, what was the impact of the BEAM trial? Well, I'm sure all of our residents out there who are working on antepartum services and labor and delivery services everywhere know um, we give magnesium to everyone who's at risk of imminent delivery under 32 weeks. The committee opinion that came out from this trial afterwards, number 455, actually was published in March 2010, so not long after the BEAM trial. It's called Magnesium Sulfate Before Anticipated Preterm Birth for Neuroprotection. And that committee opinion continues to be reaffirmed um, because of the benefit of this trial. There's actually very interestingly a table in that committee opinion that's worth looking at um, kind of talking about sort of inclusion criteria, treatment regimens, and other things that came into play with the large trial surrounding magnesium um, and neuroprotection. Um, and you can see sort of the differential effects um, and the change dosing with the BEAM trial that showed fairly definitively how beneficial magnesium could be. Um, but to talk about dosing, no six gram bolus, two grams an hour is what is used for cerebral palsy prophylaxis in the BEAM trial. And depending on where you practice, that may or may not be what you do, as we talked about last time, Faye, with Magpie trial. Um, I thought I remember you saying with Penn, you guys do six and two for everybody. Everybody. <laughs> At UW, we do four and two for everybody. And then at Brown, we stratified it by indication. Uh, we did six and two for CP prophylaxis and uh, for severe preeclampsia, we did four and two. Again, kind of like where you practice, what you do, some of these things may change um, and you should follow your institutional protocols, but the evidence for CP prophylaxis is at six and two specifically. So you should know that. Faye, I still think though that even with the BEAM trial, there are a lot of lingering questions about magnesium, how much is enough, how much time do we need with it? What can we take away from this? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the questions that I still have after reading this trial is, you know, first of all, how much time with magnesium is enough? Because the researchers here used 
you know, 12 hours. They would give 12 hours of mag, and then if there was not imminent delivery, they would shut off the magnesium, um, and then they would rebolus if it was greater than six hours from the last receipt of magnesium. But, you know, what I don't see in this study is how many people got 12 hours, how many people got three hours. And it seems like, you know, they said the median number of hours was, you know, maybe like 12.75. I just kind of calculated mm-hmm. that based on the dosing of 31.5 grams. The interquartile range would make this anywhere between like 11 and a half to like 19.3 hours, which is a lot of magnesium. And it gives me a lot of like, okay, so does it mean that we actually need to give 12 hours of mag or do we just need to get that loading dose in? Like, like what does this mean? Um, and I actually remember as a resident, we had this planned delivery of a patient very early on. And I asked Dr. Rouse and I was like, so when do we turn the mag on before her C-section? And, you know, he kind of just said, ah, you know, turn it on maybe at like 3 a.m. for a 7 a.m. delivery. But I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> That, that sounds like a classic Dr. Rouse night question and answer yeah. session. <laughs> right. Um, what about you, Nick? What questions do you have about the BEAM trial? Yeah, you know, I guess kind of it's the flip side of your question, Faye, is how much time off of MAG does it take for the effect to wear off? As you know, the study protocol redosed at six hours off the MAG with a loading dose, but As we talked about in our MAGPIE trial episode, what exactly is the therapeutic range and what's the therapeutic range for this particular indication? And we got all of these different doses from these different trials of what to do. You know, the ones for cerebral palsy prophylaxis specifically, Dr. Crother, Dr. Merritt, and Dr. Rouse, you know, the Merritt study didn't show a difference in effect. And the question I think there is like, were the numbers just too small in the trial? It was only 688 patients compared to the 2,200 patients in the BEAM trial. Or was the mag dosing too little because they did a four gram load only? So, no, I just don't know. Um, and that's something kind of that I think clinically we still face is like if I turn off the magnesium and then oh, things speed back up again, do I need to rebolus then or can I just drip from there? Um, does checking a level help me or does it not help me? Um, and we don't know the answer to that. All right. And then, Faye, one other thing that I have to say is just a little pet peeve, or maybe that's even too strong of a word for it, but something that just irks me a little bit is seeing written in a note that somebody is status post mag for this indication. I get it to some degree for preeclampsia, right? Like they get it, they get their 12 to 24 hours postpartum, and then it's like their status post mag. But if you have someone who is undelivered, who falls into the range for cerebral palsy prophylaxis, again, there's still the chance that you need to turn that back on in order to get the effect. Just like in the BEAM trial, they, they went off, then it has to go back on at some point again if delivery became imminent. Um, so you can't be mag complete. You got to turn it back on if you think somebody's going to deliver. So yeah. don't write status post mag. Don't write mag complete. Um, don't confuse people who are coming on who just, even though you take it for granted, be sure that you just are saying like, if delivery imminent, resume magnesium. That's Mm -hmm. much better to say. So sorry for that little nerd out on your uh, lingo in your notes, everybody. Um, (laughs) But that'll bring us to the end of this episode. (laughs) Faye, why don't we try to summarize? 
Yeah, so I think the takeaway points for you know the beam trial, Nick, is that it was a huge trial. You know, twenty two hundred patients is pretty great, and they also followed their infants um, out to two years of age, which is also very um, you know that's a that's a huge feat to follow people for two years. Um, and then the other thing is you know that they looked at their primary outcome, which was this composite of stillbirth infant death at one year or moderate to severe cerebral palsy. And this is actually a negative study. They didn't actually find a difference in the primary outcome. Of note, the thing that they did find that was different was the diagnosis of moderate to severe cerebral palsy um, alone. And specifically when they did their stratified analysis later on, you know, they found that this difference really was only seen in those patients who were less than 28 weeks. Regardless, the takeaway that we have um, done from this trial uh, that we now use to practice is that we do give magnesium for cerebral palsy prophylaxis for patients who are less than 32 weeks. And then with dosing, again, follow what your institution says, but do know that the evidence for cerebral palsy prophylaxis specifically falls with that six gram loading followed by a two gram an hour drip. Um, and then kind of, again, we have some lingering questions about how much time with mag is enough, how much time before the mag wears off. Um, but finally, don't write mag complete if you're using it for neuroprotection. You might have to turn it back on. All right. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, as well as that awesome Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. And last but not least, if you have a question for us about the show, you have a topic for suggestion, or you want to ask Dr. Rouse all those questions, we might be able to reach back out to him. You can email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 